What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest Mortcast. It's brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado. Just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Uh, no one can really go visit a place right now, uh, obviously for safety reasons, but you can go to bfwdenver.com, get yourself a bottle of wine. Uh, as we've all known, if you've been listening to me for the last uh, couple of years now, I really enjoy the 2017 Cabernet. It's really good, but really they got everything you want. It's a Sonoma County uh, based uh, uh, entity that, uh, that really makes their own wines from uh, grapes that are out there. So if you like California wine, Obviously, Pinot is a big part of it, but they also got anything that you really would want. Go to bfwdenver.com and uh, get your uh, a bottle today, or you can, you know, you can sign up for a virtual wine tasting, which are very popular. Go now, get it, and uh, you won't have to you won't have to skip Christmas, basically. So anyway, bfwdenver.com. They are between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the late. I cut that off too abruptly on the latest Mortcast for the CSG Network. I am, of course, your host, Jeff Morton. And uh, with me today is a very special guest. Uh, Bleacher Report covers the NBA. He's based in, uh, um, in Portland up there in the beautiful, beautiful Oregon. Uh, it's uh, I'm a pleasure to have him on. For, we've known each other for quite each other a long time, uh, at least on Twitter. But it's a pleasure to have him on right now. Yeah. It is uh, Sean Hyken. Hello, Sean doing jeff doing this yeah it's nice to nice to get this done technology has advanced enough during this pandemic to where to it made it easy at this point yeah it's been i mean that's kind of one of the like since since march everybody's everybody has everybody you know making bordeaux bread i think what is that but i i didn't that trend but that's kind of what everybody was doing at a certain yeah. point i think like the podcast equipment sales like i know that i actually i actually have a buddy who works for a music it, musical store in pit and like their biggest selling thing personal microphones and podcast making equipment <laughs> this so that's like everybody i think everybody just decided like hey we're starting a podcast well when i when i first started podcasting in 2011 uh, I, as I remember, everyone was doing a podcast like back to Bill Simmons had started doing it like mid 2000s and then it just dropped off the planet. And about when I started it in 2011, no one was really doing podcasts. And now everyone seems to have a podcast. It is absolutely insane. The way this thing has evolved has just been stunning to me, particularly on the NBA side. Uh, the NBA side is just amazing at this point. Well, the OGs in that regard, at least to me, I mean, I don't know, like, I, I, I kind of didn't start listening to Bill until like 08 or 09, but I remember the Basketball Jones, which is now Dunks, and then they were the starters for a while, but right. I was watching them, they, they, they first they did their audio one, I wasn't quite on it that early, but 
I remember watching them when they were filming it out of Skeet's apartment and they were still just like an independent thing before they ever got picked up by any media outlets. And I think a big part, I mean, obviously those guys are great at what they do and their podcast is really good, but I think a big part of why they caught on the way they did was because at the time nobody was doing it. And so if you want, if you were like curious about podcasting or about the idea of listening to a podcast and you were into the NBA, they were like basically the only thing out there. So everybody kind of jumped on that. Oh yeah. And it's, it's absolutely amazing because when I, when I, when I first started, uh, this was a more of an all sports podcast. Um, but we evolved more, uh, Nate Timmons and myself evolved into a more of a basketball centric or at least nugget centric thing. But, uh, the, you are absolutely right about basketball. Jones is one of the most vital and most uh, important ones to listen to as far as an NBA wide thing goes. They're and, still great today too. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it's, it's just amazing how it's kind of, kind of evolved. It's, it's the same thing with, uh, basket blogging, uh, yeah. because, uh, I started at Denver Stiffs in 2009 and the world was completely different. SB nation looked completely different back then too. <laughs> it's absolutely, you look at it now, if you ever see a cached version of old SB nation, and then you look at it now, it's like night and day. There's no relation between the two because it was so pre- it was almost WordPressy back when I started. Are those sites are like those old posts even still up? Because I know that all of our paroxysm stuff is way gone. Like because I because they were part of the we were part of the True Hoop network and then right. we were part of Fan Sided and then I think the entire site is just like disappeared. I think you probably have to go to like the Wayback Machine to even look at some of that stuff. I hope nobody does that, by the way, at least, at least on my end. <laughs> no, no, because uh, I, 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 I'm with you there because I read one of my old, early articles. And unfortunately, uh, Denver Stiff's archive is up and thriving. Um, uh, we have articles that Andy Feinstein wrote in 2008 on there. Or, yeah, 2008, uh, when it was known as firegeorgecarl.com. Uh, <laughs> that actually aged pretty well considering yes, it did. It did. everything else that's happened with george carl since then <laughs> he, i mean they had they had that they, they had some good years with him but you know well look I, I never thought i'd see the day where george carl would become a a, a podcaster i i tried to get george to come on the podcast many times <laughs> he's like i have no i don't know what that is i don't, I don't want to even know <laughs> that sounds about right <laughs> <laughs> but we are we are now and, I, and one of the reasons i wanted to have you on is because you are uh, located up there in portland and you've uh uh have, I'm, I'm assuming that you've uh, been intimate or at least have been privy to the uh, media day uh availabilities and the uh training camp availability since yeah i've been on these zoom calls i'm actually supposed to go tomorrow night we just like literally yeah. 20 minutes ago i got a call from the blazers pr uh, guy Jim Taylor and we, we just kind of we're wa- kind of walking through what the media policy is going to be for uh, how this stuff is going to work and they they sent us a bunch of you know video training stuff that I'm going to have to do later today to, about safety stuff what I understand is that media members are going to be allowed to be at the games in person but the availability stuff is going to be all on zoom just like it's been so it's it, we're not going to actually get to be physically near any of the players or coaches and it's going to be all virtual stuff but we're actually going to go get to sit at the arena and watch games so i'm i don't know that i'm going to go to every game this season like i normally do during non-pandemic years but i'm definitely going to go at least check the first couple of them out and see if it's worthwhile and then if it is i'm going to you know see if how 
A, see if I get anything out of it that I wouldn't get out of just staying home and watching it on TV, and B, see how the safety stuff is set up and see if I feel like it's, you know, something I feel okay about doing. Well, yeah, that's going to be really weird. I, 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 they, the Nuggets here at Ball Arena, I don't know if necessarily they have set up anything like that. If it is going to be available, it's going to be really, really small availability as far as I initial, initially have been let known. Uh, it's going to be weird because I've been you know, creden- credentialed for many years going to that Pepsi Center. And uh, it's going to be weird seeing gains there with no fans. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. the optics of that are weird anyway. And we can you know, debate the morals about whether they should be doing it anyway or not. You know, it's going to be weird watching this. It's just this whole experience this year is going to be an odd. Going back to March when everything stopped and the Nuggets, uh, it was midway through the Nuggets game where we found out the league was shutting down. Yeah. That was surreal. I, I have, I made the decision back in like June when they were May or June or whatever they were first talking about doing the bubble that I'm not going to have an opinion about whether they should or shouldn't play because whether I think it's a good idea for them to do it is not going to change whether they do it or not. Like right. if they had decided, Hey, it's not worth it. I would have been like, cool. If they decided, look, we have to make back some of this TV money. We're going to do everything we can do to get, you know, the safety stuff in order as best we can. Then I'm, I'm just, you know, I guess I, you know, we just kind of all have to deal with it. I'm hoping that, uh, everything is kind of kind of goes smoothly i have i have the 150 whatever page safety manual that the league sent i can't say i've read the entire thing but i've skimmed it and i kind of know what all the key part it does i mean just like when they did the bubble it seems like they thought of everything it seems like thorough in terms of what the requirements are i certainly feel better about them doing it than i do about the NFL, for example, which is just seems like they're kind of making it up as they go along and just trying to act like the pandemic doesn't exist, but they're outside a bubble. Now the bubble worked because they were controlling who was going in and who was going out. And there was no new elements being introduced except for halfway through the playoffs when they had, you know, let, let players bring their kids and their families in. And then, you know, they even had to quarantine. Now it's like their guys are going to be out on the road. They're going to be out at hotels and they have these guidelines about where you can and can't go. And, you know, I think that, you know, James Harden aside, I think that most people are going to be following it at least enough to like, I, th- I think a lot of players know what the optics are. Right. Right. So I think, I think it's going to, I, I am, I don't want to say optimistic because, you know, I don't, I, I just today they announced that eight more players tested positive And mm. I don't like that. I don't like that. Any players are testing positive. I don't like that. Anybody's still, has this because we should be out of this by now if if the country had any kind of a competent response to this thing but that's a whole other thing but right, uh right. <laughs> as as it is i have been told that media is going to be allowed to go to games i am going to go to the first couple to see if it's worth it and then i you know we'll go from there if it seems like it's actually worthwhile i'll keep going and then if not i'll just start staying home and watching it on tv well reading through some of the uh, safety protocols that i that it- I have been exposed to there. What occurs to me, and I, and I kind of mentioned this to um, Adam Mares, and I think the NBA is heavily, heavily counting on the vaccine at some point midway through the year, which I think is ambitious. Um, but it seems to me based on the way they have approached this, some of the players, the, the, some of the stay at home stuff that they have with the players, I don't know if necessarily that is sustainable over 72 games. 
Um, it is something that I think that just there's a fact of life that these leagues, um, including Major League Baseball, which is sending out season ticket uh, applications to emails to people right now, and they start in April. They are heavily, heavily counting on the vaccine, saving their asses, essentially. And I don't know if necessarily their, their want to or desire is going to match the reality of the situation, which, I mean, I'm, people are saying that they're not going to be able to get everyone vaccinated until at least the summer. So that really puts a crimp on specifically the NBA having fans back in the arena and let alone their players getting vaccinated. Well, I think the players are going to be able to get vaccinated sooner than people think. And I, yeah. I, I realize that everybody kind of has this, uh, this idea that only the first, like the first vaccine doses are only going to go to healthcare workers and essential workers. And that's this idea, but it's the same thing that we were dealing with during the summer when uh, we thought that, you know, it, we were talking about what the ethics are of these million dollar, you know, these, these, multi-millionaire athletes having access to tests every day and getting their results quickly when other people can't get it. Like, obviously like the first doses should go to healthcare workers. And it seems mm. like for the most part, that's going to happen. But I just think people need to be prepared for the idea that, you know, the NBA and the NFL are going to get their players vaccinated as soon as they're able to get their hands on it, because then, you know, that's going to be easier for them to let fans in. I personally don't think the NBA is going to be able to have fans at most arenas this season at all. Yeah. Like, like I know there are a few places. I think the Cavs are one of the few teams that are still trying to do it, which, you know, okay, go ahead. Let me see how that works out. The Warriors were trying to do 50% capacity with rapid testing, and Joe Lacob had this whole plan that he had laid out. And then the mm -hmm. city of San Francisco was just like, no, 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 you're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. And well, honestly, though, like, I actually have a friend who wrote I don't know if he actually wrote it or went up, but he did interview some epidemiologists about what the Warriors' plan was. Right. And they all said that they were expecting it to be a lot worse than it was. And it was actually a pretty good plan, just not right now while cases are at an all-time high. Right. And I know right. from the media side of things, the league has said, I mean, like for right now, it's the availability and the player interviews or stuff are going to be all Zoom. Like we're not going to actually get to be in the same room as any of them. Right. But the league has left open the possibility that maybe by the second half of the season or the playoffs, depending on how widespread the vaccine is, they might be able to open it up to some sort of in person, if not actually letting us back in the locker room, which I'm not expecting then at least maybe some socially distanced in-person press conferences or socially distanced one-on-ones like the reporters who were actually in the bubble had. So I'm hopeful that by the end of this season, we can at least get to the point where everything isn't Zoom. I hope so too, because they, these Zoom calls, I, I, will, I will say this, you know, as someone who's done at least, at least on, a, on a micro scale with, with me with the Nuggets, um, it is dramatically different. Uh, you yeah. do not get the information that you normally would get. Uh, your access is very limited to the basically the the uh, the pleasure of the PR staff and whether the player wants to engage. Uh, your access to whatever players is very limited. It's really a lot different. I was talking to Matt Moore about this a while back, and it's just it, it limits your ability to report on a story. But at the same time, I am not begrudging it because, quite frankly, I feel fortunate to get whatever access I can at this point. Um, just in, just the way I view these things, because it's 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 going to be it's just going to be weird for this year. And I think we as media members um, all have to sit back and say, all right, 
this is the way it is for now. And when it adjusts, because this is the greater health and the health of this country is comes first and particularly look, if you're an at risk person or anything like that, this is like some serious stuff. And even if you're not, this is, this is, this really is here and it's deadly. Obviously it's going to be different this year. Things will change gradually. Everyone sit back and just kind of ride the tide of whatever is going to be there right now. Yeah. I mean, as far as the media access stuff goes, like, for the most part, like this Zoom stuff is fine. Like it's better than nothing. It's obviously not the same. I think the thing that you run into as a reporter for the, you know, day-to-day stuff, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Blazers beat writer. I don't like cover the day-to-day happenings of the team. Right. If I was a beat writer, this access is fine. Cause you or at least fine enough to do the job because you get, you know, you get, you get the coach every day, you get the, you know, updates on who, who didn't, you get kind of, it's pretty much the same as the group stuff. If you're good, normal practice where someone like me who like the stuff that I try to write is more, you know, features and kind of more off, you know, off the beaten path stuff. That's not just, you know, using the same quotes as everybody from a press conference is having, and I ran into this a lot with them in the bubble, having to ask feature questions that you would pull someone aside to ask normally. And then that quote is just out there for everybody to use now, which And that, and you just have to hope that what you ask is niche enough that nobody's like I because I remember I, I did this story back in like during the playoffs I don't know if you saw this one but about how certain teams are using different like end of bench guys on the quote unquote scout team during these playoff series to pl- pretend to be certain guys like the the hook that I had was that the Rockets had this uh, five foot nine point guard named Chris Clemens pretending to be LeBron during the team yeah. practices yeah right and so I asked and so I asked Frank Vogel I jumped on one of the Lakers pregame Zoom calls during the playoffs and I asked Frank Vogel about if the Lakers had anybody like who they had trying to be James Harden or Russell Westbrook or whatever. And he, he said that he wouldn't say who, but he said that Quinn cook did a good Damian Lillard impersonation. And I was like, Oh, that's a pretty good quote. And so I thought of that. And then I go on Twitter and I see that one of these like Lakers fan accounts that has like 500,000 followers just tweeted out like Frank Vogel says that Quinn cook did. And it's like, I mean, I technically it's fair game, because it was said in a group setting, so I don't have ownership of it. But I'm just like, really? Like, come on. What are you doing? <laughs> like, 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 I clearly asked that for a specific story. Just, like, you don't have to just, like, tweet that out to get, like, a million retweets. And I try to, as a reporter, I try to, you know, be mindful of if it's obvious that somebody is asking a question for a specific story. I'm not just going to, like, blast that quote out on Twitter and just, you know, for me to get some retweets or whatever. So it's all just a matter of, like, obviously, technically, that's all, like, within the rules. But to me, I don't know. To me, there's like an unwritten, like, just, you know, be well, yeah. cool about that. Kind of stuff. Yeah, especially, in, you know, like in media scr- in scrums, I, 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 at least the way I would do it in the past was if there's a quote, an interesting quote, I would say this person asked this question, that sort of thing. Right, 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 and, right. Which is important to credit the person who actually garnered the answer, I think. Um, yeah. And I think, I, th- I think that is important in this and just be courteous to the people you have to work with right so um i think i think that is that is uh, very essential here and it you you adapt right and i yeah. and i and, and i think that's just the way things are right now and you know look i've been i, I have a brother who has leukemia i gotta take him to appointments so i really have to super isolate and adapting to that way of life is difficult but at the same time it's nothing compared for at least for me for like pe- if people who have to go through this stuff all the time and yeah. you guys who have to cover the league i mean you have to adapt in a in a like a, a 
a broader sense than I do, who is someone who just covers the Denver Nuggets. And right. um, it, I think that you you guys do a good job. And uh, like I said, uh, uh, I did read that article that you had. And uh, uh, you're still dead. You know, look, uh, not to, I'm not blowing sunshine up to your, your skirt here, but it's, it's uh, you're a very good writer. And I, I do read everything you do on uh, Bleacher Report. So uh, appreciate you saying that. Uh, because, it, you know, look, it's good stuff is good stuff, right? Um, so on a, on, a, on a reducing kind of to a micro level, um, you're up there in Portland. The Blazers mm-hmm. made a couple moves in uh, free agency, which really, in the eyes of a lot of people, elevated them to uh, 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 a, a loftier status than they were coming into free agency. Uh, that was the acquisition of, well, I think more specifically the acquisition of Robert Covington. Uh, as as kind of bumped them up a bit. What? How do you read the acquisition of uh, uh, Covington and I guess to a lesser lesser extent, uh, Ennis Cantor? But how do you read the uh, Covington coming in and how he kind of changes that dynamic for the uh, for the Blazers? Well, on paper, that's exactly the kind of guy that they have needed for I don't know how many years now. Like he's basically like if Al Farouk Aminu could shoot. Mm-hmm. That's yes. what that's what Covington is. And he basically does the same things. I mean, they traded him, they traded for him. They, they traded uh, Trevor Ariza who didn't play in the bubble because he had a custody issue with his son that he was dealing with. But before this, you know, before the season shut down, he had just come over from Sacramento and he was, you know, he had, he had been starting for them and he, you know, had been really good for them. And Robert Covington basically does the same things that Trevor Ariza uh, does, except he's six years younger than him and he's better than him at this point. And I don't know. I, I see all of these people saying that the Blazers had the best off season or one of the best off seasons. I think they had a very good off season because I don't think they gave up. They don't, they didn't lose any of their, you know, essential, you know, any of the pieces that they, really, you know, couldn't afford to give up. You know, they turned Trevor Ariza into Robert Covington. That's an upgrade. They got Enos Cantor, who, you know, whatever you want to say about Enos Cantor, he was good for them in the playoffs that one year that he was yeah. there for half a season, the, you know, the, the Denver series and the uh, Oklahoma City series. He was good then, and he was brought in to be a backup center, and then Nurkic got hurt like a week after they brought him in and so now he's going to just be the backup center they're going to have a full healthy year of Nurkic they brought back Carmelo who's going to be coming off the bench now and he is cool with that apparently and then (laughs) Derek Jones Jr. they signed also from Miami who I think is also going to start in one of those forward spots that's another good defender uh that's the thing that they upgraded is the defense because they right. they had the I was looking at it the other day they had the 27th ranked defense in the league their offense is always good but the defense was just like and I don't know how much of that was just that you know Nurkic was out the whole year but like just so many of their guys they just do not have like, like Damon CJ are both undersized and then uh like they just you know you're starting you know you're playing Mello who's not a you know good defensive player at this point in his career and then you know so you're throwing in just you know all of these different op gap guys Hassan Whiteside was there uh he's not like I do think they got a lot better I don't know if I necessarily think that this these moves that they made off contenders I mean I still think it's clearly like when you're looking at who's the best team in the west it's clearly the Lakers and then a pretty big gap and then else but I would still probably put the Denver 
above them in yeah. my just kind of my preseason, just like where I'm. And obviously, this year more than ever, it's impossible to project anything because you don't know how teams are going to respond to the COVID stuff. You don't know how who's who's going to have like an outbreak or you know any of that stuff. So right. it's impossible to project anything. But I would, I would say that I still like the Denver and uh, Clippers than I like at this point below the. You know, it's a, it, it, it's interesting to think about because you you brought up Melo being okay with coming off the bench. Um, yeah. Look, I, I had the, the the pleasure of covering uh, Melo uh, before he was traded, um, and then watching his career as he progressed through New York and into what happened via Oklahoma City, Houston, and then taking a year off. I realized that uh, at the time I was worried Melo was on a Allen Iverson trajectory, his former teammate. Mm-hmm. He was dangerously close to becoming that guy. He was becoming the guy who refuses. When Portland to- had picked him up. It would have been like time in that time, the brief time he had in Houston. Right. It would have been like when Iverson was in Memphis or like Detroit. He only played a few games, and right. but then Portland picked him up. It was kind of a combination of. He was just like, I've been out of the league for a year. I want to get back in. I will do. And then the other part of it, well, he started them. Yeah. And they brought him in to start. And he's legit an upgrade for them because they lose Zach at power forward because they lose Zach Collins three games into the season. That's their starting power forward. And then their other option are Nasir Little, who's 19 and was not ready to play in the NBA yet. And then Anthony Tall of H to really be a contributor and then Mario Hazonia who's like one of the worst NBA players I've ever seen (laughs) and so even even like Carmelo Anthony at his age who's been out of the league for a year was genuinely an upgrade for them and then you know he was he was good for them he did what they brought him in and you know he liked it here and when I say he's cool with coming off the bench they talked to him about it before he agreed to re-sign if he was insistent on starting like I need to start he could have gone somewhere else. I'm sure after the way he played last season, there would have been other teams interested in him if he was looking to go somewhere else. But he said, no, I like it here. I'm comfortable here. They're telling me I'm coming off the bench. I'm cool with that. I'm going to resign. That's uh, that is absolutely amazing. And then good for Mello. Good for Mello. I, 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 I was always worried about that. I did not want the Allen Iverson trajectory with him. No. I, I, he didn't deserve He Well, no, no player deserves a certain thing, but uh, I, I will say that I think that he um, owed it to himself to have a better end of his career than he was heading. And I'm glad, I'm so glad that he ended up in Portland because it, it, it seems to be a healthy situation and a good place where he can contribute uh, in a meaningful way. And I think that that part is, 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 is big here, along with uh, Yusuf Nurkic coming back and hopefully staying healthy for the, uh, for the entire season. Um, what is your view on uh, Nurkic and uh, what he brings to the Blazers? Um, he, once, once again, another player that we share perspective on. Um, I, you know, he can be a definite difference maker if he is there for the whole year because he just brings those things that are you just can't, root, uh, you know, uh, replicate with like a Hazan Whiteside, like like they attempted to last year. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you saw how you saw the impact that he had in the bubble. Just right. having a guy who's that big, you know, can again Hazan Whiteside. We still haven't seen him, or he still hasn't practiced yet this year in training camp. He has mm-hmm. been in Boston. 
dealing with a family situation. Uh, I don't know exactly what the family situation is, but he just got back from Bosnia like this week. And so when you get back from town, you have to test negative six days in a row. Yeah. And so he's still in the middle of that. What, what Terry said yesterday was that he, if he passed the test today, he theoretically could play in the preseason opener tomorrow, but it's unlikely that he's going to play because he just hasn't practiced yet. But as far as you know, he's healthy. And, you know, if he's healthy for the whole year, uh, I mean, you saw, A, how, how he was playing the year before, before he, he had the leg injury. Right. And then I think part of it, maybe it was just the, you know, extended time. Because when he, you know, he, he didn't play for the season shutdown, but he was going to play that like the season shut down on the 11th, his target date for return, and this had been reported, this had been public, was 15th against the Rockets. So he just come. And at that point, if he come back, that was when they were still to make a playoff push. He probably would have been on a minutes restriction. He would have been probably coming off the bench, playing 12 or 15 a game, not playing back to back. But then they had that shutdown. And so he had an four months to get healthy before they were even, you know, looking at play and so by the time they got to the bubble he was just a full go and yeah I mean you saw how you know how that went he was he was big oh huge huge that that uh that uh, game against Memphis uh in that uh that playing game was just absolutely uh epic uh that was the best I've ever seen Yusuf Nurkic play and uh-huh. uh, I think that you see what a player, and I think more on a on a on a larger sense, you see the difference a uh, a player like that in a center role makes uh, on a team. Uh, it it just kind of makes everything make sense, uh, kind of like Jokic does out here in Denver. You have a you have a player who just like brings all of the ingredients of the pot together, and if he's able to stay on the court, uh, I think for me personally, just from the outside looking in, uh, Nurkic is maybe the biggest X factor for uh, the Blazers heading into the year. I mean, he definitely is up there. I mean, the other guy that I think you look at in terms of maybe not quite as not going to be like your first or second scoring option, but another guy that I'm really interested to see how he looks coming back also from a serious injury is Rodney hood who missed basically all he got. He tore his Achilles in December. So he's missed basically a full calendar year. As of right now, like he's supposedly he's fully healthy. They're probably going to have it its limit, at least at first, just to eat in because he hasn't played in a year. But, you know, if he can play, that's a guy who can shoot the three. And he, he has their starting small forward before he got hurt. I would imagine he's probably not going to start now because they have Covington and they have Dare now. But, I mean, that that's another guy that they just had so few guys once their guys went down. And I don't want to uh, – attribute all of the kind of goals last year to injuries because that side of CJ and Dame was also just kind of not that good last year. But yeah. I think with all their guys healthy, they're, they are better. I think they are a playoff team. I don't know if I necessarily say for sure a top four seed, like I see some people putting them, but I think they're a playoff team with all these guys healthy and with, you know, with Dame and CJ still at the level that they're at. Well, that's, uh, I mean, Rodney Hood, I, I forgot about him. I don't know how I could trade about him. He almost yeah. single-handedly won that playoff series for the Blazers against the Dodgers yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah. I, I may have blocked it out of my brain is probably what happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> him and Evan Turner. Evan, Evan Turner in that game seven. Oh, my God. New Celtics player development coach, Evan Turner. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, a, that's another turn. I like it. How, how long was he in, in Boston? 
uh, like three years? two or three years, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Evans is a really good guy. He's like one yeah. of the most well-liked guys among players in the league. Yeah. I really enjoyed covering him. Yeah, I, 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 my interactions with him when he would come to Denver were always very positive. It, it seemed like such a decent, yeah. decent de- de fellow. Yeah. Uh, um, all right, so what we're going to do is uh, uh, kind of take a break here, and then we're going to come back, and uh, Sean and I have a, uh, uh, have a passion for music, and we're going we're gonna to discuss that, as you all know, because I do a music show on this podcast. So we'll come right back. I'll do a DraftKings read, and then we'll get right into it. Welcome back to the Mortcast with special guest Sean Hyken. I'd like to talk to you about DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Uh, DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is wishing you the happiest of holidays. And to kick off the season of giving, DraftKings has new promotions and odds boosts every day this week. Luckily for us sports fans, there is an abundance of action taking place this week. Football teams are in the hunt to secure their place in the playoffs with college basketball. With the college basketball season, it's just getting underway. There's no better place to get in on all the action. If you haven't tried DraftKings Sportsbook yet, head on over to the App Store now because you don't want to miss this. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all new players a chance to earn sign-up bonus of up to $1,000 when signing up using promo code MHS. DraftKings Sportsbook is an, has endless ways for you to bet, from live betting to betting on your favorite players. They do it all. To celebrate this weekend's UFC 256, DraftKings is giving all MMA fans who sign up now the chance to triple their winnings when placing a bet on, any, uh, on UFC 256. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code MHS when you sign up to get $1,000. That's promo code MHS to get a deposit bonus of up to $1,000 for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Colorado only. Bonus comprises of a first deposit bonus. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. All right, Sean. The real reason I brought you on here was to talk music. Um, this is where we're getting to the good stuff now. This is well, look, I, I, uh, I, 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 have, I said this at the beginning of the podcast. I, I, I have known Sean for a long time on Twitter, and uh, one thing that we do very much know each about each other is we have a love of seventies, um, seventies, yes, and uh, you specifically really are a big uh, fan of Rush. Huge. And I will tell, I will say this, I associate the two bands together. Obviously, Getty Lee and Alex Lyson uh, inter- introduced uh, a yes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2017, I think. I, all, I could have gone to that if I had been on that trip. Oh my God, really? The Bulls, the <laughs> Bulls were playing, the, 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 uh, this was when I was still on the Bulls beat at the Athletic. Uh, and I was, this was before the Athletic had the kind of, you know, you know established you know the presence that they have now and it was Mm -hmm. still kind of a startup and so we kind of picked our spots on travel i didn't do every road game but i did some road games and one of the ones that i pushed for not even knowing that it was the same week as this was they had a trip late in the season to to brooklyn because the bulls were going to play the nets Mm -hmm. i didn't end up going on that trip but it was the same it was like the the game was going to be like the day after the rock and roll hall of fame induction at Barclays and saw a couple of the other beat writers like Casey Johnson. And I think Friedel went too, but like some of the other guys actually went to the induction show. Oh, wow. And that was not only did Getty and Alex induct, yes, but cause Chris Squire had passed away by that mm-hmm. point, Getty actually sat in with them on base during yeah. the performance, which 
that would have been pretty incredible to see in person. Well, look, I, I, I'm, whenever I hear Getty Lee, I think of Chris Squire. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 only it doesn't have that. Uh, well, he does have a Rick, Rickenbacker. But uh, Chris Squire definitely played uh, a lot of his songs with a plectrum. And, uh, Are you a bass guy? I, I, lo- I love bass. I, I, I can play it. I, I'm a guitar player. I, I mean, I love Steve Howe. Steve Howe's yeah. my guy. He's incredible. Uh, um, but I, uh, the way Chris Squire played the bass was like a lead instrument. And I think yeah. Geddy Lee is right in that spirit. I mean, he's just right there with him. He is. And I mean, I'm sure Getty would probably tell you the same thing that he was one of, I mean, I think I've heard him say that his big early influences were like Chris Squire, Jack Bruce and right. like John, Ent- John Entwistle. So I think I actually, I haven't really like dove into it yet, but I have the Getty Lee base book. I don't know if you have, you have you heard of this or you seen this? I have, I have seen it. I haven't read it, but I have seen it. I have it. I haven't actually looked at it yet, but it seems pretty cool. And apparently he has like this insane collection of, vintage bases and actually the last time i saw rush was on their last tour Mm -hmm. uh their 40th anniversary tour and one of the things that getty did on that tour was he played a different bass on every song like he brought like his whole collection of like vintage bases out and he just like played a different one i'm i'm not a bassist so i don't like know what all the models were or any of that but Mm -hmm. he -hmm. had like people i know who are like bass nerds like we're talking like like wow he played like a different one of these crazy vintage basses on every song during the entire three-hour show oh yeah oh my god yeah you imagine you imagine a in a a, uh basically i don't know how many songs they play in their set but it's got to be like at least 17 25 20 okay imagine having they play three they play they play a (laughs) three-hour set with a with an intermission break in the middle they they Every every time I've seen them, I think they they used to have opening acts back in the day. By the time I was seeing them, the first time I saw them was '04. By that point, they were just like, "We have such a big catalog. We're just going to play a three-hour set with no opening act, and we just do like an intermission and do two sets." That was wow. kind of already the point they were at. Wow! And that was, I mean, was uh, and and maybe as a big Rush fan, you'd know this. Was Neil Peart already sick on that tour? Nobody knew he was sick until they announced that he died. Mm. Like that was, and I don't, I don't believe that he was because they said when they announced it in January. So like a little less than a year ago. Yeah. And they said it was a three and a half year battle. And so that would have put him being diagnosed in like the middle of 2016 and that tour ended in 2015. I will say it does suck. Not obviously it's tragic that that happened, but he, uh there's this documentary i don't know if you've seen this documentary not the beyond the lighted stage one that's like the kind of more known rush documentary but they had this other documentary called time stands still that was just about their last tour and neil spent basically that entire documentary talking about how difficult like he didn't want to do that tour at all and getty and alex just kind of talked him into doing one more tour and he was just like, like half the documentary was a joke just about how physically difficult that tour was for Neil and just how much pain he was in every single night trying to power through these. Because, you know, he, you know, he plays these three hour shows and he's in his 60s by that point. And, mm-hmm. you know, the rush stuff is not easy to play. And so physically what you have to be able to do on a night to night basis like, that was the reason that they stopped. Like, I think Getty and Alex wanted to keep going, but I think Neil was just like, I physically can't do this anymore. And so that's why they, they stopped touring. But, uh, like, he finally gets to, you know, enjoy retirement. And especially, I don't know how much you know about, like, what happened to him kind of earlier in his life in terms of, like, his family stuff. He finally, you know, gets to enjoy 
retirement with his family. And then, you know, he gets diagnosed with this brain tumor. But yeah, to, to answer your question, when I saw that he died, nobody even knew that he had this cancer. Like they kept it. And I mean, this doesn't surprise me because Neil's such a private guy. He's never really liked to do interviews or he doesn't really like, you know, a lot of attention on him. And so he kept it so quiet that like, once he died, even people like me who are like diehard fans who like know everything that's going on with all of them, like had no idea. And even like, and then later on, it seems like people came out and said like, yeah, he, pe people close to him knew, but they kind of wanted to keep it quiet. So no, that was a total shock. Well, it was like when Chris Squire died in 2015, uh, they announced he had Luke, like it was like it wasn't necessarily leukemia it was a different kind of form of cancer and it was like six months later he was dead and it was like really quick well that's that's just one of the one of the one of the really bad ones to get and actually the kind of brain cancer that neil had apparently i don't really know that much about this stuff but apparently that's the kind of thing that usually you get diagnosed and then you have six months tops the fact that he had it for three and a half years and apparently and then he lasted that long like that's pretty incredible great medical care great great and I, that uh i i think that when we look back at these sort of things and we look back at our, our favorite music because i love chris squire chris squire was the the personality of yes right yeah you have very serious musicians in there like imagine being in a band with bill bruford and steve howe i yeah. can't imagine the the amount of perfectionism that you would have to <laughs> right due to that, but uh, you have Chris Square, who was the rock star. He was the personality. He was that guy who was effortlessly could effort, effortlessly uh, play the bass with his enormous hands, the size of dinner plates. You know, and yeah. you know you get to Neil Peart, who's got you know one of the most revered uh, drummers in rock history, having to play what it was like some extremely arduous YYZ you know drum solos yeah it is just I, I i can't even imagine and i'm not even a a diehard rush fan and this is great I'll, I'll just throw this out here there to you i didn't consider myself a diehard rush fan or at least i i didn't think i knew about them as much as i did and i realized through me thinking about them the last couple of years after well at least last year after Peart died is that whether you know a lot about rush or not you have heard a lot of rush songs <laughs> Yeah, they have more <laughs> songs that are like, I mean, because obviously like the, like Tom Sawyer and, you know, Limelight mm -hmm. and Spirit of Radio are like the big ones. But, you know, there are just so many now that they're just like, you know, YYZ we're talking about. And then uh, even some of the like subdivisions, I think, was a big hit. It's, it's funny. They actually see if you see if you know this. I'm, I'm not a huge like person, even a, even for like my favorite bands. I don't really I'm not somebody who like knows where everything charted or like like chart positions or sales that's just never really been something that's interested me, me that much but see if you can guess like what rush had one top 40 hit in the united states see if you can guess what it is i'll give you three guesses uh limelight no oh um spirit of radio no oh. okay um passage to bangkok no <laughs> And it wasn't it wasn't Tom Sawyer either because that would be the obvious. Yeah, 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 no, I I and I never I and I never went to Tom Sawyer because it was too long. I, right. I always thought it was like too long to be a top forty. It's thing. not that long. It's like under five minutes, I think. Yeah. So what is the uh, what's the where top only top forty two? New World Man. Oh my God! Really? 
Yeah, and that was like, and I mean, I kind of understand. I mean, it, that's like when I, again, I was on signals. It kind of sounds like the police, and the police were like a huge yeah. thing at the time. So I, I get that, but like that was like not even like you don't hear that one on the radio that much. Like they don't really, they never really played it live that much. At least like later on, uh, like that's not the one you'd guess. But that was their only actual top forty hit, which just kind of shows that like. And that's like not even like one of the first 10 ones that you would name as like one of their popular songs, but that was their only actual hit, which just kind of shows how, you know, misleading a lot of that stuff is and how much, how meaningless a lot of that stuff is when it comes to, you know, bands like this that never really defined themselves by, you know, how many hits they had or whatever. Well, yeah. And, and you'd look at Rush and you'd say they didn't have the handicap of 70s Yes, which had all those 20 minute epics, you know? Well, they had some, but like <laughs> theirs were, theirs were a little bit more, uh, able to because like like with rush like yeah twenty one twelve obviously that whole side of that album is one song and it's 20 minutes right. long but the first two sections of it the overture and temples of syrinx like that's kind of a self-contained thing that gets classic rock radio play they play that part as like a standalone thing live you can't really do that with those yes songs like i remember back when i was like first getting into this stuff when i was in like eighth grade or ninth grade i got the like one of the first albums I got of theirs was Relayer, yeah. which is still Ooh. one of my favorite Yes albums. Oh, That's so one that good. I think people don't like talk about that much. But so that, that was the one like that was like right after Rick Wakeman left, and they I forget the name of the keyboard player that they brought in, but he was like kind of more of like a jazz fusion guy. So Patrick Moraz, Patrick Moraz, yeah. But so, uh, one of the bonus tracks on the version because I had like the whatever the recent reissue of it was I don't really have any of my CDs anymore so I don't like know off the top of my head what this was but one of the bonus tracks was the single edit of The Gates of Delirium oh my god and it was just I listened to it once and I was just like this is like the stupidest thing I've ever heard like, there's no point in like cutting down like a four minute stretch of this like like what like what are you doing like why did you even bother putting this out as a single <laughs> The only one you could do that with, well, the only section is soon, right? So yeah, that was that was what it was, and it was like yeah. that as itself isn't really that kind of song that you expect to like be a hit single or get radio play. So it's just like at that point, I feel like with with that with a band like that, you kind of, I mean, they have like the songs that are like pop radio hits, even in that era, like Roundabout or you mm -hmm. know, you know, Long Distance Run Around or whatever. But like when they put when they turn relayer into the record label they at that point i think the label should have just been like you know what the diehard fans are going to buy this we're not even going to bother <laughs> sending a song sending an edit of this 22 minute song out onto the radio and that was their biggest tour was the relayer tour that was an was it yeah, insanely oh, big I tour i would have loved to see them back then i was just listening to yes songs last night which is mm. just mm. only stuff off of the yes album fragile close to the edge run mm -hmm. and that's just that's that's a band i think i think because they're such like technical perfectionists like so, those songs are really powerful live back oh, then yeah. like they're really like they're really heavy like they're a lot heavier live than, at the time than they were on well, the record in a lot of cases well you would have to steve how would play a double neck on oh, on uh uh and you and i yeah. On, on the uh, on live and they would start with the yeah and and that song turned out to be weirdly their most popular live song and they all talk about going to philadelphia and just hearing a crescendo of applause every time they played and you and i and it's it's interesting because close to the edge is basically of their epics the song close to the edge is probably their 
Uh, I wouldn't say they're best. My favorite's The Gates of Delirium. But uh, I think it's probably the clearest and most concise distillation of where Yes was yeah. and, as a progressive rock band. Absolutely. I think, you know what, my favorite, uh, you know, live song from that era is just, is actually one, one that, I mean, I know that the Yes album was like one of their big albums, and, but like one of the songs I think that doesn't really get talked about that much on that one is Perpetual Change. Oh, I love that song. Which is just the version of it on Yes songs, which was, which also like has a drum solo. And I don't know on that specific, cause that was like right around the time Bill Bruford left. So I don't mm-hmm. know whether it was him or Alan White on the drum solo on that, but mm-hmm. some of those like early, like live recordings of that song in particular, that's one where it's just like, this is way heavier live than it is <laughs> on the album. Oh, he's a, a well. A shout out to Bill Bruford, one of the, yeah. one of rocks. Well, they call him the professor for a reason. That's um, Neil. They, uh, yeah, <laughs> they have a, I did Bill Bruford, uh, King Crimson. Uh, just I just yeah, his stuff in King Crimson was actually really good. If you can tolerate Robert Fripp, it is it is. Something Are you not a Fripp story. guy? I the the pretension from him bugs me sometimes, but I yeah. get it. And once I get it, then I can enjoy it without thinking about, oh my God, this guy is a pretentious asshole. I, I actually saw them about five years ago. Right. And they, they, they had the setup where they had the three drummers. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much you've, I don't know if you've seen that or heard about that, but I've heard about that. Yeah. It was like, it was like Pat Massalato, who's been one of their, who's been with them for a long time. And then Gavin Harrison, who's the drummer for the band Porcupine Tree. I don't know if that's, mm-hmm a man mm-hmm. you're familiar with but he's yeah. he's with them and then i i forget who the third guy was but they had three drummers on stage with them Ooh. so it was it was a lot of fun oh i mean uh well uh who else said oh that, that was something genesis did well not three drummers but genesis did when bill bruford briefly joined them in 76 uh, was having two drummers on stage which they carried forward throughout the rest of their time but well uh, right with chester thompson and with then chester once, thompson once, what, once phil once phil started being there so, so where are you on this on the genesis uh spectrum of like i because <laughs> i actually think i do prefer the early stuff mm-hmm. but i think a lot of the phil collins stuff gets kind of a bad rap well i after okay you can go all the way up to say the genesis album from 83 yeah and find credible progressive rock yeah uh, it, it, invisible touch they try it again but it's still just a long pop song right but what they did on uh up to then was still that i i think they did what they needed to do to survive i think phil collins gets a bad rap for bringing them into pop because mike rutherford was writing uh love songs and 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 catchy yeah catchy like follow you follow me on the from yeah when then there are three that's mike rutherford uh it's just uh afterglow on wind and rothering that's tony banks uh and phil collins is really the guy who just wanted to be the drummer and i and by the way one of the best drummers he is in, in progressive rock history phil collins. i think the bigger departure for them than than peter gabriel was steve hackett because once mm-hmm. like what like what like once gabriel left they basically just uh like their first couple of albums was a trick of the tail and wind and weather those are basically still prog albums they still pretty much sounded like old genesis albums except with peter with phil collins singing and then once steve hackett left that was kind of when they started to go into more of like the pop direction but even like 
some of the earlier like like Duke and Abacab, like those albums are still pretty weird. Those albums aren't just like straight pop. They still kind of have some interesting stuff on them. Well, what I what I look at with uh, what forced them to go in a more poppy direction was Mike Rutherford taking over the guitar playing duties. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could have brought in another guitar player, and they chose not to. And I think because Mike Rutherford is is a great textural uh, acoustic guitar player and again a great composer of songs, um, uh, he and Tony Banks doing Watcher of the Skies uh, from uh, Foxtrot is yeah. is uh, amazing. Uh, uh, they, they they were had the ability to write these songs, but he was not a lead guitar player like Steve Hackett, and I think that forced them to make the songs simpler. And re- that's really what you see on on. Uh, and then there were three. I on Wind and Ruthering, uh There's a song that gets a bad rap, and I don't know why. It's one for the vine. I like and, that song. And uh, for some reason, for there are so Genesis fans who hate that. It's probably because it's it's very Tony Banks song, but it is also musically complex and and challenging and yet still catchy i i love it personally so i don't i don't come down i don't think i, I think they were still they were never not a valid band right they, no. they're talented musicians and i just think i think just always been my opinion that phil collins got the bad rap because he had the nuclear solo career in night in the 80s that coincided with genesis at the time so and so people just assume that because, you know, he had these huge pop hits and he was kind of like this soft rock, like adult contemporary, like pop artist as a solo artist, that that was his influence in Genesis also. Well, yeah. Well, look at Peter Gabriel with uh, uh, So, right? Yeah. He's, he's writing, I mean, that is, uh, a lot of it has to do with Daniel Amwa, but there is a, a bunch of pop hits on that yeah. album. And, you know, they, everyone was doing it. And, I, and, like, I don't begrudge people doing it. I just, I mean, Yes did it in 19. 1980- the Peter Gabriel stuff is great, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I, I, it, where do you come down on The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway? It is not my favorite Genesis album. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, obviously, I think it's really good. I think it's, I think my favorite one is either uh, Selling England by the Pound or Foxtrot. But... Oh. I mean, I think Lamb Lies Down Broadway is good. Like, it's it's dense, extremely yeah. dense. The story is incomprehensible. I uh, never, <laughs> I never try to pay attention to like <laughs> stories on concept albums. That's just like, like, like the, I did the first like when I was when I was a kid. Like, you know, my dad had like Tommy, and so I like listened to that. And that, and ever since that, like that way, was like easy enough to follow. But like. Once I got, once I was getting into like quadrophenia and stuff, I was just like, I'm not going to try to like figure out what the whole story is on this. Like, that's just that, that, so that's never really been a consideration for me. But it's got some great, uh, like the carpet crawlers, great song. Yeah. Uh, in it, the cage. In the cage. It, uh, uh, in, back in New York city. Uh, yeah. The, the song land lies down on Broadway. Uh, they're all great, like poppy songs actually within this yeah. dense, extremely dense, dense lyrically album that you know like will make your head hurt if you try to figure it out right so counting out time is one of the worst songs i've <laughs> like in the catalog <laughs> just let's talk about buying a sex book as uh... yeah yeah it's <laughs> so as far as like the yes pop like i thought like yes did not like i actually think drama is a pretty good album but like yeah i like drama. the one out the one album that john anderson left and then briefly came back but like Trevor some Long. of the like after that, like 
I know that like Dino One Two Five was like a big hit, and like I, I owner of a Lonely Heart is fine, but like their pop stuff, I thought they just like they lost their entire identity, and they basically just like became a Journey clone, and I just thought they didn't have any like because even with like with like the Genesis stuff, like they still were you know a little bit offbeat with like they weren't just like straight until like the late '80s, they weren't just like straight pop. There was still like right. prog stuff on there, and then. With Rush, too, like they, you know, once they started doing stuff like, you know, Tom Sawyer and Spirit of Radio, those are shorter songs that are catchy and accessible. And so those songs got radio play, but they didn't sit out and say, we're going to write like pop radio hits now. Right. Whereas with Yes, I feel like they consciously, they're, you know, this British prog band, I feel like consciously they tried to become an American arena rock band like Journey or Def Leppard or something. And I just thought it sounded so, I don't know, forced and just... It, None it, of that stuff really holds. Even "Owner of a Lonely Heart," like I think that's like I like that song's not bad, but like I just none of that stuff really does a lot for me. Well, look at uh, look at um, Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe that came yeah. out in '89, which wasn't people love it. I, I I to me it's just like almost like soft rock, and yeah, I, I just <laughs> anything after drama, I pretty much am out on with. Yes, even because even later on. Like in the 90s and 2000s, they tried to get back to like a prog. They tried to get back to that 70s sound. And I just, it's, I get that. I get, like, they had one song in the mid 90s called Mind Drive. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. familiar with that. Yeah. That's like a 20 minute <laughs> epic. And that's the one time I feel like they came close to actually doing something that stands up with the 70s stuff. But other than that, like, even once they started trying to go back to that sound, it was just like, it's, it's not this, it's just, it just, as far as like their, you know, it, although, you know, it kind of makes it easier to, you know, talk about their catalog because just anything after drama, I'm just kind of out on. Well, the, uh, the mind drive originated with uh, Jimmy Page in the uh, YY, uh, the XYZ sessions. Oh, I've heard of this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah where, that's where it's from. Yeah. Well, because uh, it was like those, because like after they broke up, it was it was like that. Who like who all was in that? I think you probably know this more off the top of your head than I do. It was uh, it was Jimmy Page, Chris Squire, Alan White, and it was just the three of them, and they were going to bring in Robert Plant to oh sing. My God. And Robert Plant deemed the songs to be too complex for him. Okay. <laughs> that is that is the that is the explanation. That's uh, I mean that's that sounds about right. I mean Robert Plant's not like a prog. I mean no, I know Zeppelin no. kind of had some out there stuff, but that's like. He's he went a lot more in the like country folk right. blues direction as a solo act, and I actually think a lot of Robert Plant's solo stuff is pretty good. I saw him a, two or three years ago, and oh yeah, he was really good. I, I I saw Jimmy Page and Robert Plant here at Red Rocks, uh, which was actually '98, and that was their really good their their best tour, and then yeah. they imploded right after that. But at uh, Mind Drive originated from X Y Z. Um, there's a song on magnification by yes called can you imagine that originated yeah. there and the song from the firm called fortune hunter that with, was the paul rogers jimmy page yes yes thing, right? which which was originated there too but uh, I, I, i'll send you the, i'll send you the link it's uh there, it's, you can find it on youtube it's it's interesting to listen to because chris squire is singing it so it's uh it's interesting stuff i mean it's a, it's good as a, a curiosity uh, but that, that's about it because I, I, I think Paige was still quite heavily smacked out at that time. So that uh, kind of hinders things. But anyway, we are up against it. Uh, Sean, I appreciate you coming on. 
to talk about this amalgamation of subjects. <laughs> yeah, this was a lot of fun, man. <laughs> we should do a whole. We should do a whole episode just about the like you know we can we can talk about the nba stuff whenever but we should do a we should do a whole episode at some point just about this stuff because i could do i could go on this stuff all day well yeah i'll have you on the uh the my gen x gen x music show where i i it's basically me being old but uh hell yeah (laughs) that sounds that sounds great let's do it (laughs) all right all right Uh, sean thank you very much for coming on i appreciate it yeah